Ooh, we got one. Here we go, folks. Tax the rich, feed the poor, tell there are no rich no more. Mr. Alvin Lee for uh, ushering us into another two hours together here. It's the Friday edition today, and uh, that always means my broadcast partner, Brent Winters. If he's not with us, he'll be with us shortly, I'm sure. And uh, it's the uh, Radio Ranch course, and uh, Eurofolk Radio Network is our stream. And the, uh, the base people were mighty glad to be associated with. I was just listening to Andy here a minute ago, and another euro folk kind of guy andrew carrington hitchcock and it's uh let's see the 29th of july right at the end of that important month and uh the date stamp is seven twenty nine twenty two. so uh, it's the friday edition of course brent are you with us this morning my friend there he is he's he's fumbling for the mute button uh so always happy to have Brent on Fridays. It's usually, you know, been the end of the week, and we used to be an afternoon drive, and the original purpose of this at that point was to give folks a whole oh, stuff to ruminate on over the weekend. And, uh, of course, we're a little earlier in the day on Friday now, but that still stands. And uh, Brent and I, Brent and I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I keep saying seven years. I think we've been doing these shows nine years or so. I was thinking about that recently, too, and because we don't plan, we haven't planned any of the shows, and we haven't kept, been persnickety about keeping records, I I tried to think back where I was at the time. I remember I was in Terre Haute, and I remember sitting in the, where I remember where I was sitting, we tried to, for a while there, a little bit, we were uh, visual. In these you i was i remember well no i'm n- i don't i don't do video except on ex- except on your patriot soapbox that's the only video i do oh okay well, and besides we well back then remember. back then yeah. we were on the micro effect and, that's and, right that's right and you know they were lucky to have a, a radio signal much less a video signal and uh uh but it just seemed like that was around the book came out in 2000 right at 2011 i think and uh then it was probably about a year later or so when i moved over to uh the micro effect and it was a little while into that that dance with that ex-wife uh when we stumbled across each other but it's been a lot longer than seven is the conclusion i came to and and just like brent said see and you know this is my whole mo here i don't plan shows i don't want anything coming off canned okay spontaneous is real and i i want spontaneity here and uh so no we've never planned anything i don't do that with any radio shows but it sure has worked into a nice relationship and i'm really pleased to call you my broadcast partner and and to call you a friend you know that's we've never met isn't that funny (laughs) yeah that's live in a funny world 
Well, um, yeah, we've had some spontaneous things I, happen here. It's you, exciting. You know, one of the most unusual times is when you're up there in Alaska, up in Palmer, Matanuska Valley, and uh, you and and you were off in the woods up there and getting your internet on a on a, on a laser beam. And I'm all the way in southern Argentina, almost down to the other end of the world, and we're having a radio show, and it's crystal clear. Yeah. It, <laughs> I couldn't even get, I remember I was up there for a few weeks. I couldn't get a telephone signal. I couldn't talk to anybody down in uh, the States. Connus, as we used to say. Right. But I did somehow. I got an Internet signal. I was stay, I was living in an airplane hangar. <laughs> At the end of it, and uh, a Quonset hut, what you what we used to call Quonset hut. Yeah, it's kind of like that. And then one end, I had a bed in it, and that's where I was staying. And uh, I had, a, and it did have a refrigerator. And the fellow that was uh, the, that lived there outside the hangar, he brought over packages of bear meat for me to cook. I had a little thing I could cook on there. Yeah. And uh, but I didn't eat any of it, Roger. No, nope, nope, nope. I unless I'm starving. I'll if I'm starving, I'll eat bear meat. But otherwise, I won't do it. I think it's probably pretty chewy. Well, it's yeah, it's well greasy as all get out. Gamey, real gamey, huh? gamey. Bears are bears are like hogs. They'll eat anything, right? And uh, if you eat bear meat, you're taking a chance of getting the and their diseases. Of course, are some of them are the same ones we get and the, the bugs and whatnot. And uh, if you eat bear meat, you may pick up something you don't want to pick up. And I know people did it. Well, back in our part of the world where I grew up, uh, bear meat was a staple when people first got there because they didn't have anything else to eat. And bears were so overwhelmingly abundant. You just have to step out your door and they'd be around the house like cottontail rabbits and shoot one and hang him up and salt him, gut him and salt him down, you'd have meat for the winter. And uh, that's understandable. But if you don't have to eat it, you shouldn't. Although a lot of people still do, I suppose. Now, here's the other thing. I just caution people, no matter what you eat, when it comes to meat, cook it. Don't None of this stuff about don't do the thing about raw and rare. and No, that's, that's idiocy, utter idiocy that, City folk do often. People that live around animals know better than to do that, and they don't do it, no matter what it is, uh, because you don't know what you might be getting. But if you cook meat, no matter what it is, it certainly goes a long way to help uh, eliminate those problems. Well, that's another question. You know, Roger, I don't want to want to ignore question just come up two or three times and then you mentioned it to me this morning well and thanks to Murr for jogging me because i i i I don't know if i remembered it or not but we we we're on target and i think it was ella uh last week at the very end of the show who asked you if you could expand on praetorism a little bit now that's a funny word i remember the first time i ever heard it It when james bruggeman was talking about it and i didn't know what it was and and uh it's a very interesting thing and what were you going to say Murr? It was Robbie. Okay. Robin, Robin Renee. Oh, okay. It was Robbie. All right. Sorry. And uh, so anyway, that's we're trying to transition over from last week and get that out of the way. So, Brent, why don't you unload? Well, preterism 
It's not. Now, you said, for Roger, for instance, you said praetorism. And the reason I think you probably said praetorism is because you're familiar with the Roman praetor, the office. Could be. Could yeah. be. And, you, you, uh, and the word originally, I think, from the spelling, the older Latin spelling was pronounced that way. But it's a simple meaning. If you remember from bonehead grammar, uh, maybe you don't. <laughs> but the word praetor means... Uh, past time already happened. Oh, okay, time gone by. It, preter preterite means time gone by. Um, already before happening. Uh, preterite, and so our understanding of the Bible is shot through with concepts wrapped up in Latin words. And the reason for that is that the reformers of the 1500s and 1600s were, most of them, highly trained law of the city lawyers called Roman priests. A Roman priest, by definition, more than anything else, is a law of the city lawyer, a civilian. In South America, they're called civilians, and they were called civilians, uh, Roman lawyers. That, and they're only the, the the Roman lawyers were priests. They are lawyers of the canon civil laws of Rome. The canon civil laws are the Code of Justinian, the Roman emperor's code, compiled in the sixth century. And the highest expression of Babylonian law among men is the Code of Justinian, and he. He uh, told his legal beagles to go back as far as they could, clean back to Babylon and compile all the decretals that were available, extant, as they say, of the emperors of the cities, of the Babylonian-type cities, the Skions of Babylon. And then caught, brought that on down, of course, through Pergamos and all those places and right on through to Rome and all the decretals of the Roman emperors. You see... Uh, the law of the city are decrees from the single will from a single will of man, whether it be one man or even a legislature kind of a situation, a bevy of men that combine their will into one called legislation, and that's it's a command, legislation, and decrees, all those things. Call them what you want. What they are are the commands of the powerful party. That's what they are. The most powerful party among a people, the powers that be, which we call government, and. He compiled those, Justinian did. It's a Babylonian law. It's the law of the city in contrast to our law of the land, our common law. And from that then arose the canon laws when during the days of Constantine especially, the Code of Justinian was put to use in ecclesiastic use of the Church of Rome. And Justinian wanted complete control of his empire, and so he combined uh, the Christianity, which he couldn't stop. He wanted to get rid of it, but he couldn't stop it. So if you can't beat him, join him. So he joined him. And uh, Christianity, the Pope of Rome, became the preeminent, as they say, the preeminent among equals. Well, that's not what he really is. He's dictator, what he is. And his decretals, he is the emperor now of Rome, which is now throughout the world. He is the the Roman civil law of the feet of the of the image 
the clay mixed with iron of Babylon. That's what he is. Well, we wanted to talk, though, about preterism, and already I'm off on a rabbit trail, Roger, but preterism says this, to put it in a nutshell, preterism says it's already happened. What's already happened? Well, that's what the word means. The return of Jesus Christ has already happened. That's what preterism says. And it came to the forefront, this idea came to the forefront through men and religious denominations such as the Plymouth Brethren. They weren't necessarily preterite, all of them, but they were so loose in their eschatology, eschaton, eschaton is the Greek word from the New Testament that means last, L-A-S-T, last things, end times, the study of the end times is what eschatology means. And men like Darby, I believe Darby was a Irishman. He was arrogant. He was learned, but he was arrogant. Nobody would have anything to do with him, but he, he is the impetus Darby is the impetus of the Schofield Reference Bible, which was so popular right. when I was growing up. Right. And Darby came up with some harebrained ideas, and he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, follow the Bible. He did a complete translation of the Bible called the Darby Translation, and it's pretty good in some places. But he himself was off. Well. This whole thing about preterism comes down to whether or not Jesus Christ has already made his return and he's not, he's coming back again, but the return of which he speaks, the preterist says, has already happened. Again, preterite, preterist, it means already happened. So if we go, for instance, to the Gospel of Mark, Mark is the second book of the New Testament which Matthew's first, then Mark. We go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. We start reading. I'm going to read here from the winterized version, the good book uncooked. This is Mark 13, Jesus Christ speaking. He said, And the next day, having gone out from Bethany, he hungered. And having beheld a fig tree from afar off, having leaves, he came, given that perhaps he shall find something in it. He's hungry. He wants to eat. And having come upon it, he found not even one thing, save only leaves. For in fact, it was no fitting time of figs. It wasn't time. It wasn't fig time. It wasn't a time of the fig ripening. But he was hungry. He thought maybe he would have a few. And the safener, that's Jesus Christ, having been answered back, spelled out to the tree. Answered back, yeah, the, the, the fig tree gave its answer to him. It said, no figs here. So he spelled it out to the fig tree. He said, no longer, not even one man eats fruit out of you into the age of breath. And his impaneled jurors, that's his 12 disciples, were listening. Verse 15. And they came into Jerusalem, and the safener, having entered into the dwelling house shrine, that's what the word temple means, dwelling house shrine, he began to throw out the men selling and the men buying in the dwelling house shrine. 
and we're all familiar with that story. But the fig tree, of course, represents Israel, the nation, Israel. And he cursed the fig tree, we see later on. Now, let's go to chapter 13. And we get to, I believe it's about 15. And he talks about some horrendous things there. Well, let's, let's look at 14, verse 14. He's speaking to his impaneled jurors called the disciples. He said, moreover, whenever you all might behold the foul stench of the wasting badland, the one being now spoken under authority of Daniel, the law talker, what a prophet is, he's a law talker. That's Daniel chapter 7. Having been standing where that it is not fate, let the man reading up firsthand think it through to the bottom line. At that time, let the men in the country Judea be skedaddling into the mountains. The old King James says, let them flee into the flee into the mountains. And let the one upon the housetop not step down, neither go into his house to lift away anything. And let the one in the farmland return not to lift away his overcloak. He took his coat off so he could put up hay or something, or scythe down hay. And he took his coat off so he wouldn't get too hot. Um, he says, when these things happen, don't run and get your coat. No, just run. Just run. And run for the hills, the mountains. Moreover, surefire doom, he says. Surefire doom in those days to the women holding babes in belly. That's the way the Greek text says pregnant. You have, you have it in the belly. And the women suckling babes. They're doomed, he says. Moreover, you all swap your wishes for God's law. That means pray. That's what the word, the New Testament Greek word translated pray means. It means to swap your wishes for God's law. So that it might not happen of foul weather. For in fact, verse 19, those days shall be a gauntlet of such kind like has not happened from the lawgivers, that's God the Father, the lawgivers first yield of crafty smithing, that he craftily smith, that means the creation, until namely now, and no should not happen. And given that the elodial landlord, that's Jesus Christ, docked not those days, Docked not those days, dock them, that means cut them short. Perchance of each and every body of flesh, none is safened, but rather through the men picked out from among others whom he picked out, that means the chosen ones, the elect, he docked the days. Again, the word dock is to mean, means to cut off. Verse 21, and at that time, if any man shall say to you all, Behold, here, the Messiah, or behold, there, trust you all not. For in fact, fake messiahs and fake law talkers shall be aroused and shall give natural signs and supernatural signs toward, namely, straying away. 
given that evil, the ones picked out from among others. He's going to try to stray away from the truth, the elect, the ones that God has picked out from among others. Verse 23, moreover, you all look. I have beforehand spelt out each and all things to you all. But rather in those days, verse 24, change. there's a change after that gauntlet. The sun shall be darkened, and the bright moon shall not give her gleam, and the stars shall be falling out of the sky, and the abilities, the ones in the sky, shall be rocked and rolled. That's what it says, rocked and rolled. Makes you wonder if that's where... Roger, <laughs> where that phrase came from. And at that time, they shall awaringly see the Mac Adam. The Mac Adam. What's the Mac Adam? The Mac Adam is the son of man. Coming in clouds with a change. M- many an ableness and weighty worth. And at that time, he shall send off his agents. And shall lead up together from the four gales of the winds. And he goes on. Now, the preterite says that all of this has already happened. The preterite and the preterist, the preterist, or you could call him a preterite, says all this has gone by, has already happened. Jesus Christ has already returned. And to put it bluntly, without going through all the other proof texts, to put it bluntly and shortly, The preterite says that it already happened, and we know it already happened because we are aware of the destruction, the brutal destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And we know of it because Josephus, the Judeite, the Judiac historian, wrote extensively about it. Well, why is it, of course, that there would be so much reliance put upon a Babylonian Jewish historian. He doesn't tell us anything that the Bible doesn't give us that we need. In other words, he gives us nothing extra. We can't add him to the Bible. The Bible forbids that. But they say that's what it is. Now, was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD brutal? Oh, it was brutal. As a matter of fact, you couldn't imagine anything more brutal. The siege of the city, the Roman legions, came south through Palestine on a mission of scorched earth extermination of Israelites. And did so, village by village, town by town. They approached Jerusalem. Jerusalem said, no, we're not giving in. They locked up the city, and they set themselves in for a long siege. And the siege began. Well, it was a while later they ran out of food. And they begin to boil their own babies, <laughs> eat their own babies. Uh, the Roman general, Titus, ordered his troops to not kill anyone who tried to escape because what they were doing at that time, they would try to escape at night through the lines of the Romans. And they had much wealth, some of them, and they would swallow their gold and their silver into their bellies and they a lot of it, and then they would try to escape. Well, the Roman legionnaires knew what was happening. They'd catch them at night, kill them, slit their bellies open, and take the, the wealth. As a matter of fact, it got so bad, there was discipline. Titus was disciplined with his men. 
When that happened, he'd line up the unit it happened with, and he would kill every 10th man, behead him. And that, of course, encouraged the Ligonnaires to be disciplined, to not tolerate that from their comrades. He, of course, believed it was unjustified murder to do that. Titus did. You know, a lot of ugly things are said about the Romans, but who's really ugly here? Right. Who was really ugly here were the Babylonian Judiacs, and they suffered the penalty, and God makes this clear. They suffered the penalty that God had foreordained they would suffer, and it was about as ugly as anything you could get. Well, Titus ended up, finally, he wasn't going to let up. He never did let up. And he finally breached the walls after a long, hard fight, got inside the walls, and faced more slaughter inside. And it was a long time before he finally got to the residential part of the city. But by the time he got to the residential part of the city of Jerusalem, he was so mad, and his troops were so upset, and their blood was up, he turned them loose in the residential portion of the city after they had destroyed the temple. And they slaughtered everybody. Everybody. That's what God said would happen. God foreordained it would happen. And not to say that there was the Romans didn't do things that were unlawful and murderous. They did. But there was a lot of effort on the part of the Roman general officer, Titus, to keep that from happening. By the way, his father, Titus's father's name was Titus. He was leading the troops to begin with down through Palestine, and he got called back to Rome to be inaugurated as emperor right and so he left and left his son who was named titus to go ahead and besiege jerusalem but when rome was done with jerusalem that was 70 a.d they razzed jerusalem right down to the ground there wasn't anything left they were they were out to destroy that city that by the way keep in mind when the government comes after somebody uh, if they're evil, uh, there, there was evil. Obviously, the Roman government, with the law of the city, it was a fundamentally an evil government. But when they do things like that, and they set out to destroy, you better go someplace else. Because if they have the power, they're not going to quit. That's still true in America. When evil men, sex perverts, sodomites, lesbians, get their ugly, bony fingers on the levers of power, there's going to be bloodshed let me bring a parallel out a modern parallel to what you're talking about that hit my mind remember the the term sabra and shatila no i don't roger but uh, you can enlighten us quick and well it, i don't i remember how long ago it happened 20 25 years ago and i don't remember who the prime minister of israel were was but he sent his troops into the christian section of beirut and they literally oh. wiped off everybody that was in that section just brutally Sovereign Shatila. I get what you're saying. No, that is their policy. And the state of Israel has always had that policy. And uh, if you brook that kind of behavior, you'll suffer. God says you'll suffer the judgment that that kind of attitude. You know, some some video got out on that, and it was just, I mean, it's just blood-curdling, gut-wrenching what these people do. Uh Uh-huh. You know, like they did after when they took over Israel, and of course the very famous, just commemorated here in May, uh, uh, Dier Yasun. You know about that one? No, go ahead. 
Well, this is when they were doing the original 48 cleansing of the land, and Deir Yassin was a, uh, is still a village outside of Jerusalem, and they were actually friendly towards the, the Israelis, okay, when they were purging the Arabs uh, there initially. and uh, But they had the unfortunate situation of being on a particularly desirable piece of land that was high in the adjacent area. And they came in and surrounded it, 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 the village. And I just remember one of the things that I heard. They took all the women in the village and they put them in houses. And all night they made them clean the houses. And the next morning they dynamited the houses with them in it. And what year would that have been? 48. Oh, it's a D-I-E-R and a second word Y-A-S-S-U-M, I think. Maybe I am. But yeah, no, it's a it's a that was a horrible, horrible uh, massacre by these creeps. Well, it would be expected, as all law of the city concepts of law demand, anybody that's not in their initiated group are no better than animals, and that's of now, course that, what their that's that, what their religious writings. It's, it's right there in the Talmud. You know, yeah. You, the, those others don't have any souls. You're the one with souls. You know, Brent. I don't know. I had a listener early on who was uh, married to a real big guy in Hollywood. Uh, I won't use his name. Okay, and uh, he, he, she was a Gentile. He was a Jew, but he was an atheist. Uh, had bolted an agnostic anyway because he was raised in Chicago. His father was a doctor, and they sent him to uh, what do they call it? Khalil, the the synagogue school. And at six years old, he's in class, and the rabbi's up there going, you're better than everybody else. You're better than everybody else. And it affected him so much at that age that he literally bolted the synagogue and and was an atheist or agnostic the rest of his life. Yeah. No, that's that's what they're Now Now, his wife told me that story, okay? And it's true, again, and it doesn't make any difference whether you're really powerful or really poor and destitute. That's the attitude that false religion, law, and government always brings. I'm reminded the word Cheyenne means human being. That's about the closest you can come in English. In other words, the Cheyenne Indians, the Cheyenne red man, believed that everybody else was an animal except their tribe. That's normal right? among men. That's the way it always is. They may not always bring it out in the open. You know, Hitler had the master race... And uh, the Japs uh, during World War II said that they were the master race. They use other words. They believed they were descended from the gods and we were animals. That's why they did what they did. Do we? Are we so foolish and blind that we won't stop to see what? Well, the truth is, if, um, if you're not motivated by the love of Jesus Christ and you're not, uh, you're not love- trying to love your neighbor, you're going to try to eat him. That's all there is to it. And that's what it comes back to. <laughs> There's, there's a meeting economically, eating physically, eating spiritual, whatever you take from it. <laughs> there's a dialect. There's a dialectic for you. Uh, yeah. Something else I wanted to ask you. Uh, do, do you know the history behind the reason that the Roman legions wanted to come down and destroy Jerusalem at this point? Even, no, well, I want you to tell us because I imagine you're studying. No, 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 I, I don't. I'm asking a serious question because oh. I don't know. Oh, well, there were uh, rebellions, of course, that were happening. And they were always happening. They never stopped happening. Still haven't. What? Still haven't. No, that's a good point, Roger. 
And uh, even when Jesus Christ was crucified, remember, there were men there with him that had led murderous insurrections against Rome. It's not smart to do that. You know, if you want to resist the evil empire, and I'm, I'm assuming you do, you're outraged by what you see, our captain has given us very specific orders how to do that. And squaring off with the evil empire mm-hmm. no, no. is evil. It, and it's suicide. You'll be killed. You don't square off with them. You don't draw the line in the sand. I had a fellow yesterday. Oh, I went in. Well, I won't tell all the story. I almost did. But it reminded me why I don't want to be in some places. It was on the street. I met this fella. And, uh, well, let me put it this way. He just said, well, judge not that you be not judged. That you're, 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 breaking, you're breaking the Bible there. You're judging. I said, well responded to him that's kind of silly isn't it that you would understand that way because you're judging me right now when you say that aren't you judging me oh it got worse from there but he was he was judging me when he said to me judge not that you be not judged he was criticizing me he was telling me i was wrong he told me i was sinning he told me i was uh, an undesirable because i thought that uh I thought that people in public office ought, hadn't ought to be sex perverts and sodomites. Oh, my Lord. Well, we, we, but this is common. So <laughs> he said, judge not that you be not judged. What Jesus Christ did, clearly, it's impossible for anybody to do that the way it's understood. In other words, if I'm not to judge other people, shoot, I'd be robbed and dead and uh, I'd be broke. <laughs> you you. If you're wise and prudent, you size up the other fellow and decide who he is. And the Bible commands us to do that, by the way. And to not have fellowship with those, not have commonness with those that are of not like kindred spirit. That's what it says. And if you do, you're going to pay a price. Do not be unequally yoked. Well, how are you going to keep from being unequally yoked if you don't judge the other fellow and decide what his point of view is concerning reality? Well, what Jesus Christ is saying there, and it's an unfortunate re- rendering of that verse. I don't render it that way, shucks. I thought I'd. That's. I think that's. Uh, let me just look at how I render it here. That's Matthew chapter seven, verse one. The famous verse says, "Judge not," or is translated, "Judge not that you be not judged." When you come to a verse like that, and you know it doesn't make sense the way you're hearing people say it. Just know that whatever it says is true. It's the Bible. But we're not understanding it correctly. There's something wrong. Don't water it down. Find out what it's saying. That's what you should do. Well, I'm about there. Seven here. Okay, verse one. This is from the winterized version. You all, that's the only way I can I can translate that because we. I could use ye, Y-E. That's the old way of uh, second person plural, but the only other uh, way we could do it is you all. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. You all should not adjudicate. Well, what does the other translation say? Judge not that you be not judged. What does it say? Really? It says you should not, should not, you all should not adjudicate so that you not should not be adjudicated. What's he saying? This word translated judge, does it mean judge? Yes, but it means more than that. It means fundamentally something more colorful. 
the word krima, and it has to do with the ma on the end of the Greek word signifies the end result of a process, ma, the result. Final judgment. Final judgment is what it's talking about. It's talking about do not relegate people to hell. It's talking about that. Jesus Christ is speaking here. Uh, talk, do you relegate people to hell? Go to hell. Well, that's relegating people to hell. Don't do that. This fellow last night called me a fool. Well, that's where the conversation was over. And I told him, conversation's over. You're calling me a fool. Jesus Christ says point blank, don't call other people fools. And that's what you're doing. Well, you should not adjudicate so that you all should not be adjudicated. That's what it says. For in fact, verse 2, by whatever adjudicated sentence of damnation you all adjudicate, you all shall be adjudicated. That's pretty sobering. What he's saying here, only God has jurisdiction to relegate men to hell forever. That's what he's saying. Get to the bottom line. Only God has jurisdiction to relegate men and women or anybody else, the demons themselves, to hell forever. And the Bible says all authority from the Father has been given to the Son, Jesus Christ, to do that. And he will hurl, it says, all those into hell forever that do not fully fall down and submit to him. That's what he says. And that's what the Father says. And that's what the testimonies of the Bible say. And so this verse about judge not that you be not judged is used for those that like the self-righteous attitude that they can, use, they can, uh, they can uh, accuse others of with this verse. Uh, whatever adjudication of damnation you all adjudicate, you all shall be adjudicated. And by what measure? You all measure, it shall be measured to you all. That's what he's saying. Well, let's get to the Olivet Discourse of Matthew and see what Jesus Christ says there about the eschaton, the last things. I believe it's about chapter 23, if I'm not mistaken. Let me scroll down here a minute. I could turn on the pages, but I'm on the computer here. Again, reading from the winterized version of the Bible, he's saying, verse 13, surefire doom to you all, all you, city law notaries and Pharisees. That's the scribes and the Pharisees, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, stage actor, hupokratos, that's their word for a stage actor, and living the life of a thespian. Surefire doom, he says, he's, he's throwing down the gauntlet. He is starting a fight because he knows that his job is to die and that they are to kill him. And so he comes at him. He swears off with him. And what happened to him? He gave himself up. He did it on purpose so that he would be murdered for your, on your behalf, for your sake, and to keep you, I hope you, I hope you're one of the elect out of eternal hell. And there are ways you can determine whether or not you are one of the elect, uh, verse or chapter 24. He went to the dwelling house shrine, and his final jurors came near to point up to him the buildings of the dwelling house shrine. 
They thought that was a big deal. And he said to them, I say unto you, amen. That's a Hebrew word. Amen, he says in the Greek. It's put in Greek letters. I spell out to you all, no, not a stone upon a stone shall be left here that shall not be hurled down. And in 70 AD, when Titus got there, and it took a long time even after he got inside the city, but he finally got to the temple. And Josephus records that one of the soldiers hurled a hot timber into a window of the temple and caught the caught on fire the flammable material inside of the temple. The gold that was on top of the temple began to melt and run down, and that's how they got at it. I don't know that it was planned, but they didn't have they couldn't climb up on top very easy, and that's how they got the gold. And then the legionnaires, legionnaires tore down stone upon stone right down to the ground, and that's what Jesus Christ said. Moreover, verse three, he was sitting upon the Mount of Olives. This is the famous Olivet Discourse. The impaneled jurors, it says, came near him, reading here from the winterized version again, according to his very own self, spelling it out. They said, spell out to us, when shall these things be? And what is the sign of, namely, your very own kingly presence? Now, here's a word I want to camp on just a minute, a Greek word. Very own, that means, that's the Greek word idios, idiosyncrasy. What's an idiosyncrasy? It's your very own. It's unique to you. Nobody else has it. It's your idiosyncrasy. This is the word idios. And he says that they were um, with him by themselves is the idea. And they said, tell us when your parousia gets here, your parousia. What's your parousia? That is your kingly presence. That's an important word in the New Testament, parousia, translated most often coming, the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the parousia, the traveling in and the gathered ending. They said, tell us about the gathered ending of the age of breath and the safener. That's Jesus Christ. Savior means safener to make safe. He's one who makes his people safe. Having been answered back, spelled it out to them, be wary that no man might astray you at all. For in fact, many shall come upon my named right, spelling it out, I am, I, I am the Messiah, and shall astray many men. Moreover, you all shall surefire be hearing of wars and hearings of wars. The same words used twice there, the translations usually say, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, or the literary lilt of the phrase, the reason they do that, but it says by the letters, you will have you will be hearing of wars and hearings of wars. Beware you all are not alarmed. For in fact it is fate to happen. It's gonna happen. Why? Because God decreed it, that's why. That's word it is fate. That means it's a foregone conclusion. It's going to happen. Otherwise, the full-blown unfolding is not yet. Verse 7, for in fact, nation shall arouse upon nation. And arrangement of right upon arrangement of right. That's kingdom upon kingdom. That's what Basileia means, an arrangement of right. 
and shall be hungerings and illnesses and earthquakes down to certain places. All these, moreover, are a first yield of birth pangs. He's using picturesque language. He says, these are birth pangs. Something is going to be born here. Not a person, but something's being generated, and these are the birth pangs. At that time, they shall betray you all into a gauntlet. Into a gauntlet. That's a tight place you run through and you struggle. And shall outright kill you all. Shall outright kill you all. And you all shall be hated under power of each and all the nations. Through my name right. And at that time many shall be disheartened by disgust and shall betray one another of like kind, and shall hate one another of like kind. That means your family and your friends are going to turn you over to the evil empire. That's what that means. That's happening now. Your children, your spouses, your friends, your neighbors, your so-called Christian folks at church. I knew a fella back, yes, it is. It's been happening a lot, but it's happening more. I knew a fella in Indiana. His uh, church turned him over to the feds and him and his wife both went to federal prison for five years. They turned him over. In other words, they said about him on the witness stand what they were told to say. That's what, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. What did they charge him with? Well, he was building a church building out South Indianapolis near, and it was across the field from a manufacturing plant. Oh, this is the 501c3 incident there years ago. Well, right? it was uh, the manufacturing plant was, discharging uh, a little bit of sewage into the environment and they blamed it there was a state senator that was one of the shareholders on the board of the manufacturing plant and instead of taking the fall he went to his federal prosecutor buddy and blamed the preacher said that what they were doing there on the construction site was doing it mm. as causing the the, the discharge of the deleterious material. That's the way the federal statute says it. And they went to prison. And his secretary, who had been with for years, testified against him. Mm. I'm reminded of, I uh, uh, can't think of the fellow's name, but the Christian college down there in Pensacola, Florida, turned, turned him and his wife over to the feds because they didn't like him. Yeah. What was it? Yeah, Kent Hovind. Kent Hovind. He went to federal prison for 10 years mm. because the Christian college, and he was had a ministry right beside their ministry. They turned him over. But Jesus Christ promises that your children and your brother-in-law and your sister-in-law and your son-in-law and your mother and your father, there'll be all this uh, turning state's evidence, as they say, on each other. Many fake law talkers, verse 11, shall be aroused and shall astray many. Well, that's what Mark said. And through the lawlessness, the plumping out full of namely lawlessness, the duty-sharp love of many shall be breathed out chilly. Again, this is by the letters what Jesus Christ said. The duty-sharp love, that's agape, of the many shall be breathed out chilly. It will go, as the King James, I think, says, it will grow cold. However, the one staying under authority into the full-blown unfolding, he becomes safened. 
And this good spell of the arrangement of rights shall be heralded in the whole city of the city uh, in the whole city law city law world for evidence to each and all the nations. And at that time, the full blown end shall get here. Therefore, verse fifteen: Whenever you all shall behold the foul stench of the wasting badland, the saying now having been said through Daniel the law talker, chapter seven, Daniel, I believe, standing in a set apart clean place, the man reading firsthand, let him think it through to the bottom line. Isn't that what Mark said? I think he did. At that time, let the men, namely in Judea, in Judea, scattle, skedaddle, into the mountains. Let the one upon the housetop not come down to take the things out of the household. Mark said, recorded the same thing. And let not the man in the farmland return back to lift away his overcloak. Moreover, surefire doom to the ones holding a child in the belly and to the ones suckling a child in those days. You all, however, swap your wishes for God's law. That's prayer. That's what prayer means. So that your flight not happen in winter cold, neither upon a debtless rest day, that's the Sabbath, the day of debtless rest. For in fact, at that time shall be a forcibly great gauntlet that shall befall of a kind that has not happened from city law orders first yield until now. Moreover, no, nor might ever happen. It's going to be as bad as anybody could imagine worse than what you can imagine in your most awful nightmare. Verse 22, and given that those days were not docked, that means cut short, perchance of each and every body of flesh, none was safened. However, through the ones picked out from among others, the elect, those days are shortened. At that time, if any man says to you all, behold here or there, the Messiah, trust him not. For in fact, Fake messiahs shall be aroused and fake law talkers as prophets and shall show forcibly great natural signs and supernatural signs, given that as both are able, they astray even the ones picked out from among others, the elect. Behold, I have before spelt it out to you. Therefore, if they might spell it out to you, behold, he is in the bushland. You should not go out. Behold, he is in the corn cribs. The grain bins, that's what it says. You all should not trust it. All around alike as the lightning comes from the east and is flashed into the west, like this shall be the MacAdam, his kingly presence. Again, the MacAdam, I translate it that way because I needed a short word that was memorable. And most of the translations say son of man. We also. Adam. But MacAdam is a familiar term in our culture, if we understand it aright. And by the way, people maybe have heard of macadamization. Macadamization. Macadamization is a asphalt road, a blacktop road. That's called macadamized, and it's named after the Scottish engineer that invented, that discovered macadamization, mixing tar with gravel and sand and making a road. And that family, though, here's the interesting thing to me about the MacAdam family. Um, that Scottish engineer that was in the army, in the British army that did that, his family wasn't named MacAdam. His family changed their name to MacAdam 
because they were Christian folk. And they did this not too long before he invented Mac atomization. But they wanted to stress that they are sons of Adam. Plural, sons of Adam. And Mac, of course, is uh, old uh, Celtic for son of. Just like O in Irish is son of. In the Bible, Bar, Bar Jonah, Simon Bar Jonah, that means son of Jonah. Uh, in the Germanic tongues, in Dutch, uh, uh, Van is used as it's a preposition used the same way. Van Winkle means son of Winkle. And Von in German, of, the preposition means son of Von Tassel, means son of Tassel. As Van Tassel means son of Tassel in Dutch. Well, Mac Adam is a word, a nice brief word that I can use here to uh, get across quickly and memorably who Jesus Christ is. He stresses, I am a son of Adam. I'm not a son. I am the Mac Adam. I am the son of Adam. And uh, the Mac Adam's kingly presence, he speaks here, the parousia, the traveling in of the king. Where that, if perchance the carcass might be, the eagle shall be led together. He's saying, you want to know where the foul stench is, where the carry-on is? Just uh, notice where the eagles or the hawks or the buzzards. Buzzards and vultures. But the word here, and I struggled over that too when I was translating, I wanted a word that I thought was closest to the Greek word, and this is the word here in the Greek text that means eagle. No question, as distinguished from a buzzard or a vulture. So I wanted to be as accurate as I could. And so I said eagle. But the, the point is still the same. Okay, all this is going to happen. This is about as ugly as you can get. It did get as ugly as you can get. The preterist says, the preterist says, well, it's already happened. That's what preterist means and preterite. It's already happened. What happened? Well, all this stuff that Jesus Christ is here describing has already happened. And it happened in 70 AD because that was about as bad as you can get, and that was the time when people should have fled to the hills. Now, is that partially true? Yes, it's partially true. What I mean to say is about 100,000 people, according to the records that are obtainable, evidentiary records of of the the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, about 100,000 people, they saw the Roman legions coming, they hightailed. They hightailed out of town and they saved their lives because they were the ones that heeded what Jesus Christ says right here. Word got out what he said. People were listening to him. The disciples, the disciples, the, uh, the impaneled jurors, the 12, they heralded what Jesus said. They wrote it down and about a hundred thousand people saved their lives because they heeded what Jesus Christ said. But about another 100,000 laughed it off, just like they did in Sodom when the the angels, including Jesus Christ, came to destroy Sodom, pre-incarnate, came to destroy Sodom. They said to Lot and his family, get out. But what did Lot's family do? He laughed. They laughed at him. They thought he was a madman. A beautiful city like this, this this city's not going down. Well, God destroyed it, just like he's destroyed Jerusalem. So these things really happened. They laughed it off. 100,000 of them died. Approximately 100,000 saved their lives. This principle of fleeing the city 
is still true. But here, let me back up. This is not this is not the destruction necessarily of Jerusalem. It is in a small way, but it isn't. The Preterites said, "No, it's done. This is fulfilled completely. It's not going to happen again." I say, "No, it's going to happen again. It has happened throughout history: Sodom and Gomorrah." Then we had other cities that were destroyed as well. Jerusalem was destroyed more than once. Egypt was destroyed. That was the law of the city. Get out. Get out before you get destroyed with Egypt. And on and on the madness goes. But the cities of the earth, in the end of the Bible, it says, every city on the faces of the land of this earth, God will destroy. Because there's only one city he has authorized. Only one. And that is the new Jerusalem which is about approximately, according to the dimensions of the book of Revelation, approximately the size, a cube that would set down and be as big as the United States on the ground, the bottom of it. Um, okay, let me back up and talk about hermeneutics, if I can, Roger, for just a minute. Then I'll yeah, no, let's fill in all the blanks. The hermeneutic here, people say, well, this is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, what does that mean? Well, that means... In time literature, apo from from destruction, the book of Revelation. They say, well, that's apocalyptic literature. This passage in Matthew, this is apocalyptic uh, literary genre. And and uh, what about the prophet Joel? Uh, Peter says, for example, in Acts two, he says, "This is that," a famous phrase in the Bible. This is that spoken of by the prophet Joel. Well, was this that spoken of by the prophet Joel? Uh, was Peter speaking truth? Did Peter really say that? Well, yeah, Peter really said that. But Peter said a lot of things that weren't true. Peter denied Jesus Christ. What makes us think that the book of Acts is a book of doctrine? It isn't. It's a book of precise, accurate history. Peter really said that. But the point I'm making about apocalyptic literature is apocalyptic literature, they say, is symbolic. You know, people say, what about the giant locust in Revelation? Oh, those are helicopters, people say. Well, what makes you think they're helicopters? Well, because it's apocalyptic literature, and that means it's symbolic, and you can't take it literally. That's silly talk of the evil empire. Why? Because it is impossible to not... If you're going to be accurate with the Bible, it's impossible to not take it literally in everything it says. If you don't do that, you won't even understand where it is not, as they say, literal. Let me explain what I mean. If the Bible says that the hell is fire and brimstone and heaven has streets of gold, should we take that to be that heaven has streets of gold and hell is literally fire, is fire and brimstone? Well, if you don't understand that first and take it by the letters that way, if it is a symbol, you won't understand what the symbol means. So when I say that all of the Bible has to be taken literally, if you're going to really, if you're going to understand it at all, well, you're going to have to do that. If somebody said, I remember one time my brother, we were at the Oliver dealership. That's the fellows that took care of our tractors. If one was busted, old um, Leon McNerlin neighbor to us. He worked there, and when we had a problem with a tractor, and Leon, we'd, he'd come out to the field. He'd try to keep us going. Well, we were in there one time, and he was taking care of a tractor, and 
and my uncle Frank was there in town. And uh, my brother David had a knife, a little knife on his belt. Well, it was, wasn't very big, but it was a knife that he always carried on his belt. And uh, my uncle Frank said, what are you doing with that knife? And he said, well, I use it to clean plows. When we're plowing, that's what I use to dig the, the uh, when the plow gets clogged up with all the foliage and the, all the vegetation on the ground, the corn stalks or whatever it is, I sometimes use this knife to clean the plow. And Uncle Frank said, when he first said, I used, he said, I used to clean, clean plows. And he said, whose plow are you cleaning? Whose plow are you cleaning? Now, I may be talking to people that don't know what that means, but that's a symbol. Where I come from, if you said you're going to clean somebody's plow, that means you're going to give them a whooping. That's what right. that meant. Right. Yeah, we've heard that. And maybe yeah. people don't say that that much anymore because people don't use plows anymore. So they've lost the meaning. They don't understand the symbol, and they don't know what it means. But you cannot understand the, the meaning of that, of that symbol, unless you first take the symbol literally. When the Bible says there are streets of gold and, he- and hell is fire and brimstone, I, and to understand what those symbols mean, I must first take them by the letters. What is gold, and what is fire, and what is brimstone? But we need to be careful in this regard, and I'll tell you why. If the only, or the only time that symbols are ever used in speech, no matter what culture and what tongue, symbols are always used for the same reason, because we can't find any other way to communicate that which is more intense than the symbol. If the Bible says, for instance, that heaven is streets of gold, well, if it's a symbol, then it's something even more valuable than gold, more intense than gold. If hell, people say, I don't believe hell is fire and brimstone. I say, for your sake, I hope it is. Because if it isn't fire and brimstone, it's going to be something much worse. That's why we use the symbol. That's why it's a symbol. So with a symbol, always remember the reality the symbol represents is more intense in some way, good, bad, or whatever. It's more intense than the symbol itself. In apocalyptic literature, when it talks about locusts and scorpions, it's anybody's guess what that means if it's a symbol. But understand, whatever it means, it's more intense than the locust if it's a symbol, if you take it that way. Why wouldn't you just take it as scorpions and, and vipers and uh, locusts? You could do that just as easy. It'd be more believable, probably. But my point is, be careful. We come to apocalyptic literature here in Matthew, and he talks about all these things about women are going to be doomed if they're pregnant, flee from, from the city. Friends, neighbors, and kin, that's not symbolic. It says that in Mark, the stars will fall from the heavens. Is that symbolic? Listen, if the whole passage is not symbolic, then that's not symbolic either. Not symbolic at all. And if it is symbolic, it'll be something much worse. Well, what could be more catastrophic than stars falling to earth? What would happen if stars fell to earth? Well, the earth would be vaporized. That's what would happen. (laughs) But there's no sense trying to think this thing too far and milk it out too far. The Bible says what it says understand what it literally says if you believe it has to be a symbol understand that the symbol is more intense or the reality is more intense than the symbol bottom line what does brent how does brent take this well there's one verse in the bible 
and I'm going to wrap it up with this, that says that this generation shall not pass away until all these things, Jesus Christ is speaking, until all these things be fulfilled. People say, well, it's already happened then because Jesus Christ said, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. It's right here in the Olivet Discourse. Let me see if I can see it. I think it's well, chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 34. Let me scroll down and see if that's it. Amen. I spell it out. Yes, here it is. Now this, I'll read it to you from the winterized version. Uh, Jesus Christ speaking, and after he says all these horrendous things about what's going to happen, he says, Amen. I spell it out to you all that this root stock shall not play out until perchance each and all these things might happen. Now, the King James and the other popular translations read something like this. This generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. This generation shall not pass away until all these things be fulfilled. And how do I translate? I translate, amen, I spell it out to you all, plural, that this root stalk shall not play out until, perchance, each and all these things might happen. The question here is, what is, what does this Greek word, the King James and the other translations translate generation? What does it mean? Does it mean uh, this round of offspring? I mean, I have my brothers and I and my first cousins, we're all in the same generation. Does it mean that, this generation? of people that are, are then living? Or is he talking about what God has here generated in all these events? Ten times in the book of Genesis, you can, we call it Genesis because it's the book of generation. Because ten times, and the book is organized according to these ten appearances of this one phrase. These are the generations of. The first time it appears in Genesis, it says, these are the generations of the heavens, the skies, and the land. The generations of skies and land. And then it says later, these are the generations of Adam. The word generation doesn't always, in the Bible, of course it's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, but it means the same thing as this word. The word generation is the Bible, God, does not always apply it to men. And the rounds of offspring as generations. Um, it's my full, con- full uh, conviction that he is here, Jesus Christ is here talking about the generation of these events. God is generation, generating these events. And these events, by the letters it says, they, this generation shall not play out. I remember when I was in uh, law school, there's a famous case written by a, uh, a famous judge uh, from the New York Court of Appeals, that, that's what they call their Supreme Court in the state of New York, back in the 1920s, about a fella that was getting on a, a platform at a train station, getting ready to board a train, and he had a package uh, with him, 
that was a package of fireworks. And he had it propped up or laying over by uh, a set of scales. If you can picture those old kind of scales that really aren't that old. We used to stand on has that balance thing. Oh, in yeah. There. Oh, yeah. For the cargo cargo platforms, on we had them in the little town where I lived. There was a cargo platform at the train station, and it wasn't a very just a little building, but that's where the the freight agent, who was uh, Herman Rooks, uh, for the railroad, made sure all freight got in and out. And with that was a a, a set of scales there. You could set the a package on or a, a bag and weigh it, so he'd know how much to charge for freight. Well, that's what happened here. But he had a fireworks in a package, and something fell on the platform and knocked over the scale, the set of scales sitting there. And when it knocked over the set of scales, it landed on the fireworks. This is the facts of the case as they came down to us. It sounds impossible, but this is what happened. And the fireworks started going off and just shooting everywhere. And somebody got injured. And so the fellow that got injured wanted to sue and ended up suing the railroad. And of course, well, I think he sued the guy at the fireworks first and the guy at the fireworks sued the railroad said it was their fault. It was because they had this stuff that fell down on top of his, uh, and the question on top of his fireworks and, and made him go off. And the question was, at what point do we cut off liability when there's a chain of events like that? Um, there, there, when, when, when something fell on the scales, that called the, caused the scales to fall over and land on the fireworks. The fireworks, it, 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 it ignited the energy in those fireworks, and that energy ignited the fireworks, and, and that energy then spread when the fireworks were shooting around and hit somebody, and that energy was so intense when it hit that person that uh, it injured him. Well, how did that all happen? It happened because of the energy generated by gravity when something fell over and hit those scales. See? And we call that a generation. A generation of energy, see, happened, and that energy doesn't go away. It keeps going. Even after it does all the things and you think it's gone, it's not gone. It just dissipates. It's still out there because energy is impossible to destroy. And when the Bible says this root stalk this rootstock shall not play out until all these things might happen. Shall not play out this generation, this rootstock. But this word here, mean, genia, means a playing out of a generated line of energy. A playing out of a generated line of energy. When it says these are the generations of Adam, well, what did Adam do? How much energy did he expend when he was when he was making babies? <laughs> Quite a bit of energy. And that energy that God had put in him, that energy came out with his sperm. And that energy generated more a, a generation of babies, men that generated more babies. And more babies, and that generation, by the way, is still going. That's why you and I are here, because of the generation of Adam. That's what this word generation means. I've heard Bible teachers, I'm talking about capable, well-trained Bible teachers, effective and good Bible teachers, say things like this. Well, a generation in the Bible is about 40 years. That is brainless talk. They've gone off the rails. They've ignored the Bible. They do that. 
There's no place in the Bible that says a generation is 40 years, and that's not even what the word means. It's not a length of time. It's an expansion of energy. Ex- ex- expansion? I-, I made up a good word there. It's an expansion of energy. It is a... <laughs> I like that word expansion, Roger. I think, but it's, it, I think it's valid, Brent. Oh, okay, okay. This I'm, is really interesting. I had never looked at that word like this. It just really generation. is a... Well, that's why we, we have this these round things. We... We have them in automobiles. We have them in trucks. We have them in industrial factories. We call them generators. What do they do? They generate energy, and they are generators. They generate electricity, and that's what the word means. We use it that way. Why do we not use it that way in the Bible? I don't know, because precisely that is what this Greek word means, to generate something. So when it says this generation shall not pass away, oh, well, the People that were living then uh, are gone now, so this must already happen. That is utterly silly. But that's not the only time that this generation is mentioned. It's also mentioned throughout Matthew 23. Every time it's mentioned, this generation is talking about the generation to whom Jesus was speaking. Those are time indicators. When he says this, the this generation will not pass away. He's talking to that crowd, answering that question, when will the end of the age be? The end of the age of I know you say that. And you say that. I'm telling you I don't buy that. And I'm telling you why I don't buy it. Apply it to every other time. Apply it to every other time this generation is mentioned by Jesus, and it doesn't make sense any other way. Well, point it out to me, and let's look at it. Well, I don't have a Bible in front of me, and I'm visually That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. I'll find it. I'll try to find it here. There's other places where he mentions this generation. When he condemns the Pharisees, he's saying, to whom shall I compare this generation? Yes. He also talks about that uh, it would have been easier on Sodom and Gomorrah if they had seen what this generation had seen. And so there are time indicators throughout the New Testament. And the irony is that Matthew 24 is looked at by atheists as being evidence that Jesus was a false prophet because he didn't return as they expected him to return. The second coming, so-called, didn't well, before happen. We go, wait, before we go further, are you, are you a, a preterist? Marshall, I think all Christians are preterists to some degree. Let me ask okay. a question. I don't recognize your voice. Who are you? Could you identify yourself, please? Theo from Florida. Oh, okay, Theo. Hey, he's new, he's new Brent. I have to disagree with you, and I have to do it flatly and exclusively. No. He's not talking about time. He's talking about a generation of men. And the Pharisees are a generation of men. Edomites. That's what he's talking about. Why? And if you if you understand it that way, everything falls in place. That's my position. And these things have happened. The destruction of Jerusalem was, and this is true in prophecy. I see it throughout the Bible. This is true in prophecy. Um, the Bible will say something's going to happen. And then it happens in little ways that are little compared to the final bringing together of all things. And then the consummation and the final happening of the event prophesied happens. But it happens in little ways before, like I had mentioned before, Sodom and Gomorrah is a precursor to Jerusalem. Get out of the city. And the principle to us is what are we to do? What are we to do? We are to get out. Roger and I have talked about this a lot. Get out of Sodom. Get out of Egypt. Get out of Judaism. Get out of Romanism. Get out of Mormonism. Get out. Get out. Get out 
of the law of the city and the religion and the government of the city and live your life according to what God wants you to do. That's my point. Now, if you're a preterist and you say you are a virtual preterist, whatever that means. That, no, I said I'm a partial. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood you. I misunderstood the word. You're a partial preterist, and I know a lot of those, too. Um, I don't see that. I see that. Well, it depends on what you mean by partial preterist. I believe that. Let me finish, then I'll I'll let you talk. Uh, A partial preterist preterist comes in many different forms, more partial than others. So I don't know exactly how partial you are, but I'm a partial preterist, too, in the sense that these things that he prophesied did happen in small ways, and they're going to happen in a way that we can't even fathom in the last time. Go ahead. Well, my point is is that a lot of uh, people people believe that Matthew 24 is talking about the end of the world. But he's answering the disciples' questions about when will these things take place. He was talking about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, not the end of the right. world. Correct. The end of, of I, agree with, I agree with you, Theo. It's mistranslated. The end of the world is the end of the age. Right. And he was talking about the the end of the old covenant age and the, the commencement of the new covenant. Now, the old covenant was this animal sacrifices that took place in the temple, and he had gone and condemned the temple twice. There were two cleansings of the temple. According to Levitical law, you have to two, the priest goes through and condemns it twice, and he says, Behold, I leave to you, your house to you desolate. And then he prophesies that this, this generation will not pass away till all these things come to pass. Atheists would argue in debates, you can look Christopher Hitchens versus Douglas Wilson. And, and Hitchens brought up that passage to say that Jesus was a false prophet. Because everybody believes that Matthew 24 is about the second coming of Christ at the end of the world and all that. He was talking about the end of the age, the end of the Jewish age. I get and, what and, you're saying. No, I get what you're saying. I'm familiar, with, I'm familiar with all these fellows you're talking about. But let me say again, it is not a matter of a generation, a round of offspring. It's a matter of the generation that God generates and the energy that he generates to accomplish these things, however you understand them. Let's just put aside whether or not this is the complete fulfillment or the partial fulfillment. What I'm, what I'm stressing here is, is the refusal of people that are theologians, like I don't know what Doug Wilson thinks about this exactly, but I know some of his stuff, what he thinks about it, to say that this is not a matter of a round of offspring, this is a matter of energy generated that God has put in motion. And if you understand it that way, even what you're saying is true as well. That doesn't that doesn't rob your position at all as a partial preterist. That's my point. I'm just saying that there are a lot of time indicators, not just in Matthew 24, but in Revelation, where the end is near, uh, these things that are about to take place, they were clearly talking about what was going to happen in that generation or nearby. And Jesus' prophecy that was a, a spectacular fulfillment in 70 AD is ironically looked at as evidence that he's a false prophet because he didn't return the way people expected him to return in that generation. It all makes sense when you realize he was talking to that group of people. He says, very many people of you, you won't go through the cities of Jews, of Israel. There's, only, well, there's one problem with that. That's not what the words mean. But it comes back to this. Always, it comes back to this. What do the words mean? And the words don't mean that. It means energy. It's talking about what is generated. And again, that doesn't 
doesn't do any damage to the partial preterist at all. And here's another thing that I like to point out, and this is a hermeneutical principle. God does never declare and operate on time schedules, ever. In the Bible, never. It's always a matter of events. And time is measured by events, not by, okay, on this date, date setters, of course, try to ignore that, and that gets them in trouble. But date setting comes in play when you start talking about time. And you can't separate the two. Um, but it comes down to, bottom line, this has been my experience, no matter what else we think or believe, you can you can go to all the theologians, such as Doug Wilson. He's theolo- he's a theologian. He's not a Bible interpreter. He depends upon others to do a lot of that. It's been my observation with him. He doesn't look at words that closely. He does And I'm not, I'm not criticizing <laughs> him. I'm just saying that's not what his particular calling is. He is a philosopher. And he is a classicist. That's what he is. But when it comes down to it, the question is always, what does the words of the original text say? That has yin-ya. Yin-ya on. means generation. What? Yin-ya. It's the Greek word for generation. It can mean other things, but you have to interpret it based on the context. When he says this generation will not pass away, there's a context there. And he's talking to that group of people. And he, and what was he conveying to them? What would they think? They would believe that they were people there in his hearing would be still alive. Many of them would still be alive when these things were to take place. That did happen in 70 AD. 1.1 million Jews were killed. And he told the Christians who remembered his words to flee the city. When, he, when the armies circled Jerusalem... They were told, counterintuitively, because back then you were to go into behind the walls of the city for protection. Jesus told them the opposite. Go to the hills. Go to the mountains. Well, you're arguing, but you're you're preaching to the choir at this point, because I already said that, and I said that's true. Right. Yeah, you're you're the choir. So I'm I'm with you on that. But what I say again is, what does the word mean? And you're pushing it, I think, clearly, from my perspective, you're pushing that word way out of bounds what it means. It does not mean a set period of time in any sense. It is a matter of genomai. It's the base of the word is genomai. And it's the same word of the Old Testament. By the way, it is. it answers to the Old Testament word um, that is the name of God himself, uh, often, tra- uh, often translated, uh, and it came to pass, or, and it happened. That's the, the name of God, Yehoha. He is the happening one, not I am that I am. No, 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 no. That's no verb of being. It's not a verb of being. It's a verb of undefined action and energy. That's what it is. He is the happening one that makes things happen, and he makes this happen, and his energy is what makes this happen. That's what Jesus Christ is talking about here. And to say otherwise is to take away from his identity as the happening one. That's the way I see what people do. And they do it. Here's why I think they do it. Good men. That's why I say good Bible teachers that I learn from. You're talking about Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson's a sound man. I've listened to him a lot. I've met the man. But what I'm saying is to say that is to encroach upon the identity of Jesus Christ and take away from the idea that he never stops stressing that he is the happening one that makes all things happen, that generates everything that happens. This generation will not play out until all these things come to pass. 
Did many of those things come to pass? Yes, many of them came to pass at the destruction of Jerusalem. That's my that's my point. That's what I'm trying to say. But I, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying too. And if there's something here I'm missing, let me know. But no, this will happen again. It'll happen in ways that we can't even imagine. Also, you were talking about uh, um, figurative speech and and all that. When he yeah. says the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. That's apocalyptic literature that's repeated in judgment language in the Old Testament. Okay, Isaiah let me, let me 10, back up. Isaiah 34. Thank you again. Not now your first name again. So Theo. 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 Theo's, yeah, one, Theo's one of our newer... Let me, let me just... Hold on, Brent. Just hold on for a second. Theo's, Theo's one of our newer folks. He just... I think you just showed up this week, right, Theo? Yes. Okay, and obviously Theo is, is Greek. He lives down there in the Greek part of Florida around... Uh, where they used to do a lot of sponge diving, Chris. Uh, anyway, uh, so you're pretty, you're pretty fluent. Are you pretty fluent in your native language? I'm fluent in modern Greek. Okay, I'm not, I'm not fluent in the uh, Koine Greek that the Bible was written in. Okay, okay. Well, thank you, Theo. I think we've communicated through email before, haven't we? I communicated with uh, Roger through email because I didn't know how to participate yeah, in the no, show. Well, no, we're glad to have this. This is important. I'm glad you're bringing these things up. Well, let me come back to church history a little bit. You were talking about Doug Wilson. Uh, Doug is a, a, a Baptist turned Presbyterian. I think his father was a Baptist Bible believer turned Presbyterian, as a lot of people have done in the last uh, 20, well, 40 years, really. Presbyterianism, their eschatology, is uh, tracks pretty squarely with uh, the history of the church from the beginning. And that's not to say it's all right, but it tracks pretty squarely with it. And uh, what a lot of fundamental Presbyterians do, for instance, and I know uh, many of them, they'll take the creation account and say that that's symbolic too. Oh, it communicates truth, but you got to understand the symbols and what the symbols mean. And the, this whole thing about, uh, we call them uh, metaphors and uh, similes. Similes and all of that, putting one thing beside another, parables as a, a, another species of those kind of things, parable A. All of those, all of those kinds of things uh, get out of hand real quick. And I've noticed the Presbyterians have a tendency, uh, they're Reformed, and I am too, but they have a tendency to carry that too far because a Presbyterian, by definition, uh, is more, more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable of church history and theology than he is of the Bible. I don't say that flippantly, and I don't say it to be uh, discouraging to people that are Presbyterians, but it's the culture of Presbyterianism to be that way. Do they know their church history? Very well. Do they know theology? They got it wired. And, and uh, they do a good job, and they bring that to the table. But that doesn't mean they're Bible interpreters. And I, have- yeah, I, I just brought up Douglas Wilson as an example because he was in a debate where he, used, where he was challenged by Christopher Hitchens that Jesus was a false prophet. And right. Wilson, I, I don't, I'm not a big follower of Doug Wilson. Uh, if you want, I follow really R.C. Sproul, who was a mentor of mine, and and he is a Bible interpreter and so forth, and a theologian, and a Presbyterian, by the way. 
but he believes that that was uh, he's a partial preterist in his interpretation of Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. Well, I misunderstood you, Leo. I misunderstood you at first. I thought you were saying you were a full preterist, and I'm no, a partial. Yeah, I'm a partial. But I would disagree with you. I would disagree with you that R.C. Sproul is a Bible interpreter. R.C. Sproul, if he's anything, he's an historian, he's a consummate philosopher, and he is a theologian of, of the highest degree. No question. And there's much to learn from him, but I wouldn't say that he's fundamentally a Bible interpreter. That's not what he is. And that he, he would probably, he's gone now, of course, but he would right. probably say that too. But uh, no, and there's much to learn from him. So I don't want to denigrate him in any way either. I would consider him a like kindred spirit. But I don't know. I don't know, I don't know what he says about symbolism. And, and uh, I'd have to go and look. And the Genesis account, for instance, but symbolism gets out of hand wherever church history is stressed more than the Bible. Wherever there's a creedal church like the Presbyterian Church that adheres uh, to the Westminster Confession, and it's a good confession. Wherever that happens, the Bible will recede from the consideration of men's minds. It will, and it does. You can't stop it. That's why we say, the Reformers said, and we need to even pull the Reformed people back and say, no, 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 let's go back to the Bible, life short, let's spend our time with what these words say here. And uh, somebody like you could probably bring some good ideas to the table about what the text says, but go ahead. No, I was just going to say about that one part that when you talk about the stars falling from heaven and all that, that that's identical to language in the Old Testament that spoke of God's coming in judgment, say against Babylon and against others. And almost the exact same language Jesus used there was used in the Old Testament in like Isaiah 10, Isaiah 34, where he talks almost identical language. And it spoke of God's coming in judgment. And that's why I'm saying that Matthew 24 was looked at historically, especially by modern-day dispensationalists, as talking about the end of the world. Uh-huh. Jesus was talking about the end of the age. Now, and, hey, wait, Theo, before we go any further, I agree with that. And that is a mistranslation, so I understand your point there. And, and when he's talking about the stars falling from heaven, it has to be looked at symbolically because... Like you said earlier, what would happen if the stars fell from it's, it's It's absurd. The stars falling from heaven and hitting the earth. It's apocalyptic language that correlates identically with Old Testament apocalyptic language of God coming in judgment. Jesus came. He came in judgment in 70 A.D. That's what that language indicated. Well, I'm, I'm, less, but I'm less prone to gravitate to symbolism. In that case, it, as we said before, if it isn't stars falling from heaven, it's something much worse. Or it could be symbolic. Go ahead. Or it could be symbolic, and he was identifying uh, people to pointing them back to Old Testament language that indicated judgment comings. Well, if he's pointing to Old Testament language, to repeat my principle of hermeneutics, symbolic speech in all languages among all men is used to bespeak something greater than the symbol, more intense than the symbol. If it's not stars falling from heaven, it's something much more intense, and we can't even imagine. That's my, that was my point. So however you take it, and I'm not telling somebody how to take some of this stuff, because some of it, it, 
I frankly, I've read a lot about a lot of symbols in different places, and there are places where it's obvious that nobody knows what the symbol represents. But we can know this. There are things we can know. Whatever it represents, it's much more intense than the symbol himself. Don't act like, oh, we don't know. No, folks, you know. You see a symbol that's intense, like fire and brimstone, stars falling from heaven. Uh, you know that it's something that refers to something in that case, worse, more destructive than the symbol itself. Brent, can I say something about symbols and symbolism? This just came from the late uh, Jordan Maxwell, I believe is where I got it. And he said the reason that our enemies use symbols is to convey that to generations where words can have their meanings changed. Well, it, it happens that way, that's for sure, unfortunately. Yeah, that's true. But think about this. All of speech, all of language is a symbol. Every every detail of it is a symbol. Every word is a symbol. Every letter of the Greek tongue, every letter of the Hebrew tongue is a symbol. More pronounced in the Greek, it's pictographic, to be blunt. Every, everything about the way we speak and what we say is symbolic. For example, you go to the Hebrew tongue, you can go look it up on the Internet. It might be fun. Every letter, every 20, all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet are symbols of concrete things in life. Alpha is the ox. Baith means house. And the word baith means house. That's the name of the letter. Alpha, uh, or aleph, I mean, not, not Greek, alpha. Aleph, baith. And then uh, lamad in the Hebrew tongue means uh, a goad, an ox goad. Gimel means camel. There's a big one. You know, look look at a gimel. It looks like a camel. They're pictures made to look like uh, something in nature, something concrete. And everything we cannot communicate. It is impossible to use words to communicate without referring to a symbol just to say what you want to say. When I say baith, I'm referring to a symbol. When I say lamad, when I say wow, or vav, as some traditions say, that means hook. Well, that's the word and. It's the conjunctive in the Hebrew tongue. We talk about something that hooks things together. So it's impossible not to use symbols. And so to say, well, this is apocalyptic literature. It's symbolic. Well, what in the Bible is not symbolic? Not only are the parables, the similes, the metaphors, and the allegories all symbolic, but then every word, every phrase, every letter, every jot, as Jesus Christ said, and every tittle is symbolic. I can't tell you something unless I refer to something you're already familiar with. It's not possible. When I say and in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew would say hook. Hook. Well, that's something they're familiar with. Oh, you're hooking these words together. You're hooking these phrases together. We get it now. Jesus Christ said the kingdom of heaven is like a man that bought a field. You know what a field is, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'm using the field to show you what the kingdom of heaven is like. You you go from the known, you can't learn any other way. You go from the known to the unknown. It is impossible to go from the unknown to the known. True. So you go from the known to the symbol. You start with the symbol sometimes, but you always end up with with going from the the, the known to the unknown. It has to come down to that. And when you see the symbols of language, of words, of letters, uh, we're going from something we know to a concept we don't know yet. Well, I've done a lot of talking, Roger, and I've burnt out. And so if other, oh, by the way, Theo, are you still there? 
Yes. Theo, did you go to school down there? Was R.C. one of your teachers? Not personally. I, I've met him a few times, but I didn't. I wasn't one of his students. Um, uh, I, I follow him. I listened to all his sermons and oh. over his uh, website, and I've uh, listened. I've gone to all his conferences throughout the early two thousands at Ligonier. Uh, oh, uh-huh. well, I I first met him, saw him, and knew of him in 1982 yeah. at, at the Inerrancy Conference in uh, San Diego, California Convention Center downtown. And he was a giant in that movement, in the Inerrancy. Oh, yeah. And a very young man at that time. Amazing. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I followed him a long time, too. And, no, he's a man that was, uh, he's gone now, of course, mm-hmm. recently. But he was a, a valuable gift to God's people, no question. Yes, he was. Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I'm glad that you brought him up, and he's worth listening to. I should tell other people that I, I've listened to a lot of men. I'm, I learned from a lot of men, and he's one of them. But when I was on the radio back in Terre Haute, I, I uh, persuaded the station there to put him on every day, and I uh, had called down and uh, had them send tapes at that time up. But the dispensationalists, some of them. The support of the station uh, were incensed about it. Yeah, and they said, "I remember this is what one of my friends said. That man is a partial preterist. That was his objection." When, yeah. and, uh, I didn't say, "Well, I am too," but <laughs> all of these. What's that, uh, Theo? Go ahead. No, I'm just laughing. I know that it's a position that a lot of people don't understand, and they demonize it because they don't really hear it, especially in this culture, where everybody's been under the influence of Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth and uh, the Left Behind series. Yeah, and that all comes from that fellow I'd mentioned in the beginning. I believe he was an Irishman. He he lived in Ireland. He was an American, and his name was Darby. Yep. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Dispensationalism. Yes, and that started the, the dispensational movement. Well, Roger, anyway, back to well, you. Well, I'm going to tell you what, what, what added to the dispensational movement was the Rothschild starting Reform Judaism in 1837 and seeing that they could use this to their advantage. That's true. Oh, yeah, the dispensational movement in America is what has money-bagged uh, the state of Israel. It also neutered the majority of the pastors. Uh-huh. No. Can you stand to hear a woman's voice? Yeah, and Murr, come on, give us a woman's <laughs> point of view. I've been sounding like Brent Johnson here. Murr's going to give us the woman's point of view. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have this thing that, and I saw someone had sort of partial in, in here, but uh, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a symbol is worth a thousand pictures and a thousand years. Can't argue with that. Yeah. But also, there are apocalyptic things coming, right? Well, certainly. <laughs> Boy, if you don't if you can't see it, you better go to your optometrist. Right. I mean the earth will be burnt. It will be burnt. So it may not be by falling stars, but it will be you know, the very elements will burn. So but also in the Bible, too, like Luke 3, where people like to, especially Christian identity, I think, like to use 
um, Joseph's lineage to prove Christ's lineage. And that's his earthly father and not his actual father. But it goes back, what is it, 70 generations or something? And But it always says son of. And also in the Old Testament, they'll say begat. So it's not always generation as a time. Well, you know, I had this I had lunch with a couple of guys here yesterday, and one of them's a new guy. And I just found out recently he's a Mormon, and uh, uh, he converted to Mormonism, I don't know, 10, 10 something, 15 years ago. And uh, I brought up that very point of the begats, you know, what end of Genesis and the next book, Deuteronomy or Numbers, Brent, the begat, yeah. pages and pages and pages, so and so begat, so and so begat, so and so begat, so and so. And those are all males. How can the Jews be the people of the book when you're only a Jew if your mother was a Jew? Right, and Jew is kind of written in. But, um, like, for instance, the discussion of land of Nod, and they'll say, oh, well, Cain went to land of Nod. Well, where were those people? Well, you have to remember, Adam was like 600 years old at that time, and he lived to be 900 years old, generating children. And all the children generating more children, so... They obviously didn't get the jab. Oh, and about Darby. There's a castle involved where apparently they, they cast spells. Well, there's a lot of false doctrine out there, and that's one of the reasons we, uh, you know, listen to Brent and have him on here because of you can see his in-depth scholarship in this stuff and his life's work of what he's produced and uh it just gives me insights over the years uh that i've never had before in this area and samuel untermeyer now this is the other thing people don't Ooh, like to boy there's a bad guy you know but how you'll have just one person and they'll have stuff to trail of things and they'll seem to be opposing at times no, i'll let Mur talk right where you're somebody's either interfering and doesn't have their mic on or else you're away from your mic so uh, we want to hear what you got to say okay Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, he, he was behind Woodrow Wilson. Yes. With the blackmail. Yes. Of course. Yes. And uh, old syphilitic Woody there. And uh, he, um, of course, got Louis Brandeis on the court with that black Correct, correct. That was, their, that was their beachhead. Right, who got World War One, Federal Reserve, and the taxes all going. Don't forget Untermeyer's involvement with bringing Schofield to New York that's and enrolling him. To. You were going to that? Okay, well, I hate to short sheet you, so go ahead. No, that's okay. That's that's what I was going to say. He was involved with that. And likewise, in today, he's now gone, but Mark Lane, whose name was Levin, people don't, oh, don't say anything bad about him because he was behind the spotlight in American free press. But he was also a CIA lawyer and was behind Jim Jones. He was his handler. And those people didn't drink Kool-Aid. There was no mass suicide. There's never been a mass suicide. Even the Mossad from, you know, claimed that. No, there were some people maybe that killed themselves, but the Romans killed them. Likewise, <laughs> all these people that were enslaved down there with Jim Jones, they hunted them down and killed them. And then lay their bodies all out, you know, bloated, so it looks like they all fell on their faces. But it's not hardly what happened. And it as this went on, they said in the news, oh, we found 900 more behind the grandstand. No, they're all hiding in the jungle. 
trying to keep from being killed. <laughs> and that's why they had to kill that congressman. Ryan. So, yeah. But Mark Lane, Mark Levin is right there. So there's no morals. They they have no no qualms about being totally opposite, seeming legitimate and, and even Christ loving at times. And it's a total farce. Well, they take the cold nadre oath every fall. Yeah, some of them do. So like Harold Wallace Rosenthal, they a lot of them they don't even consider any of that stuff or chicken swinging or any of it. They just do what they want to do. They're selfish. And that's what Satanism is. Roger, I'm going to read here something that, speaking of the Darbyites, in, in uh, church history, Darby is viewed the generator, to use that word again, he generated this movement we today called, we call uh, dispensationalism. Charismatic Christianity came out of it, a whole lot of other things. Uh, a Charles Haddon Spurgeon recognized uh, that Darbyism was dangerous. Now, Spurgeon was a well-known preacher in London, and every Sunday he'd preach to upwards of 8,000 people without a microphone. Wow. He was one of the most well-known men in England back in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. He was a contemporary with D.L. Moody. And uh, he was a Baptist by denomination, but people call him the last of the great Puritans. He was a biblicist to the core. But he warned people against he warned people against Darbyism. Not to mention the Plymouth Brethren movement, which is a popular movement, a stronghold inside of dispensationalism still. And we should take note of what Spurgeon said on that, on that point. Now I'm reading here from one of the publications that he had published in, but I don't know that this is his words, but it is a summation written by the publisher, I think, of what he said about Darbyites and Darbyism. He said, "With the deadly, this says, with the deadly heresies entertained and taught by the Plymouth Brethren in relation to some of the most momentous of all the doctrines of the gospel." to which I have adverted at some length, I feel assured that my readers will not be surprised at any other views, however unscriptural or, or or pernicious they may be, which the Darbyites have embraced and zealously seek to propagate. The lack of attention, the spiritualization, the, over, the overemphasis on lawlessness is the only way to say it, <laughs> Well, any emphasis would be too much, has done more to destroy and to build the ugliness up that we see now in America anything than dispensationalism and Darbyism. It's organized. Uh, dispensationalism is organized lawlessness. That's what it is. Uh, at the center of the educational institutions uh, for the past pertinent near 100 years in America of this organized lawlessness is Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. Yep. And they put out a lot of a lot of men. They highly educated. Uh, they learn a lot. They're very learned men. But it's organized lawlessness because it denies that the purpose of God's 
election of men, his choosing out of some for his purposes and his glory, it denies that that purpose is that they would do his will, do God's will. And the law of God becomes empty to them. It becomes nothing. They spend their time studying the Greek and the Hebrew, the Older Testament, and at the same time deny what it says. They'll flat tell you that the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. The New Covenant, now Theo mentioned a while ago the New Covenant, and I'm hoping that we're about out of time now, but Theo, I want you to come back sometime, maybe, and I want you to give us your point of view on the New Covenant, which, because I know the camp you're in, and I want you to describe to us. Well, now, hold it. We got... We're getting some interference somewhere, and it's drowning Brent out. So if you got your mute off, you know, could you please put it on so we get good fidelity here? I want to be able to shake it down with somebody who, uh, it seems, um, understands his own point of view. I'm hoping you do. And if you do, we can talk about it, and I may find out where I differ. That's what I want to do and where and why. Um, so we can do that later. Roger, I'm going to quit talking. Everybody here has been nice and kind and patient to listen to me talk most of the time today. I know I do that a lot, but not always as much as I did today. But, but people had requested my understanding of preterism, and that's why I ended up doing it. But I'm going to back out. Let me, let me just say, I, and I'm I'm not a biblical scholar by any means. It's an area that's lacking. I've spent my time in other areas. But um, my view of dispensationalism is that it was installed to neuter Christians. Because anytime you say, oh, that's okay, I'm going to be raptured out of here. So it just that's gives them this no. overall excuse to do anything they want to do. Yeah, that's it, Roger. That's it. The devil, his, his chief... His chief purpose, old Satan himself, old Scratch, the fiendish one, what he wants to do is, he's not dumb, he strikes at the very foundation of the Christian faith. And the very foundation of the Christian faith is the covenant, as they call it. I call it the trust settlement, the entrustment, the trust settlement, that relationship that God created with Adam. And that is repeated and expanded in our understanding throughout the Bible. We call it the covenant of Adam, the covenant with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant repeated to David, the covenant of Jesus Christ. That's all the same covenant. But it has different aspects, and it it has a fulfillment that comes uh, in our time. But the covenant has never changed, fundamentally. He strikes at that covenant. That's why he's striking at manhood. That's why sodomy is uh, something that uh, our culture now in America says you can't speak against. You'll be castigated if you do. Lesbianism and sodomy. Because it's like heart of the covenant to strike at manhood because God made his covenant with Adam. And the female of the species participates in that same trust settlement through her husband or through her father. If she has neither, if she's husbandless and fatherless, God says she participates in that special category 
she's set aside as special, and she he, she participates under his special protection, and we are to observe that. The woman is taken care of in all of this covenant relationship, but if she's married, she participates through her husband or her father. That's what the Bible says. That's why the the, the onslaught is so great against the di- distinction between the sexes. The evil one does not want us to make distinction between the sexes. That tends, the uniformity of that tends to destroy that covenant that God made with Adam. And that covenant, that trust settlement then, stretches to Jesus Christ came to do, the Bible says, what the first Adam, the first Adam, the Mac Adam, came to do what the first Adam failed to do. I want to say, for one, I've really enjoyed this and that you have a request for Genesis 6 next. <laughs> okay, but I got, a que- I got a question on the 14th Amendment before that. <laughs> we might have to do that next week. Go ahead, Paul. Oh, we got that noise again. We got that noise again. Somebody please hit your mute. It's, just, it's destroying everything. Um. All right. Well, hey, it looks like it disappeared. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, we always pick on the all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. Okay. We we all always. Well, we don't uh, pick, pick on up. it. We analyze it. Okay. Well, we point that out. Well, uh, I would submit that there's there's an addition to that. Uh, because uh, the next phrase says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United That's States. That's called the Privileges and Immunities Clause. There have been several important court cases on that. Okay. And uh, I, let and me point it, you to, can, wait a minute, before, before you go any further, let me point you to where that's codified too, Paul, and audience, and that's in Title 42, Section 1983 and 1986, I believe, and it says right there, the citizen of the United States shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of the white citizens. That's in the United States Code. Okay. Now, now it continues to say, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And it continues, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. But do you know what that doesn't say? Go ahead. <laughs> Lawful by omission, what that doesn't say is the states can't enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities as long as they're as long as they're federal citizens that's why you had that case out in colorado where the baker refused the sodomite couple to bake a cake for him and they ruled against him right but that doesn't say that the the federal government cannot do all of those things to the federal government can do anything they want because you're an object of their property rights so it's the federal government telling the states that the states must protect the citizens of the United States. Well, that's what they're asking you when they say you're a resident, okay? What yeah. they're technically asking you under the original laws of residency is, are you residing in a state as a new federal citizen asking for protection from the federal government against any reactions from your state? That's what it's really asking. 
Okay, so if a person set claims to be a 14th Amendment citizen, they are also claiming that the federal government can abuse them in any way they want. Well, of course, they got a property right in them. Hell, look at look at what's going on around here. Look at those 100 guys sitting in D.C. in solitary confinement for a year and a half to almost two years. Uh-huh. And see, my question is this. What if one of those 100-plus people would have had an affidavit in and would have been a national and not a citizen of the United States? Would they still be in jail? Well, let me add this. Listeners, go to commonlawyer.com. Yeah. <laughs> Brent, we're even plugging your site for you, man. Uh, listen, I want to say for all of you, I'm going to have Brent on RBN Sunday night, and we're going to do basically what we did today on the common law. Okay, that's the the hopes anyway. So you may want to listen to that. I think it's going to be an exceptionally good program over there on RBN Sunday. Can you explain how we would log into that? Uh, uh, that Repub- Republicbroadcasting.org. Okay. It'll be in the chat, Theo. I, I think it's Republicbroadcastingnetwork.org. No, well, I thought it was, I, one of the two. Put it in a search. It'll come up. They, they've been around a long time. And the play button is right there on the page. Republicbroadcasting.org. Thank you, Murr. I thought that's what it was. Roger, I want to ask Murr a question before she gets away. Okay. Well, we, you know, we're going to get cut off the server here in a second. That's why she jumped in with your website, commonlawyer.com. But we can hang around because we don't have another show behind us if any of you want a further discussion for a while. So otherwise than that, thanks for all the listeners. I hope you got something out of today, a little bit in-depth, different Friday, but it was really good information. Brent, we appreciate you going into the detail and the background and all the things you've learned with all your hard work over the years. Well, my pleasure, of course. And, uh, yeah, go to commonlawyer.com, and you can see there how to click on uh, links and listen to us elsewhere. Uh, Patriot Soapbox Saturday morning. Sunday morning, we're going through Genesis. Saturday morning, we're going through Romans. We're going to have a guest Saturday morning who is uh, uh, from a family of IRS defense lawyers. Oh, so let's come on Saturday and listen. He's uh, out of country, but I think we're going to get hooked up. We don't. We'll keep doing uh, Romans. But uh, I want to ask Murr real quick. Um, did you say that Levine is behind the American Free Press? Yeah, his name's Levine. It, Mark Lane was the name, but his uh, father or grandfather changed it from Levine. L-E-V-I-N. Not the Mark Levine that's on TV and stuff. Not not he, this guy. He worked, this guy's already dead. He, he worked real closely with uh, Willis Carto, I know. I'll, I'll send you something on him, Brent. Okay, thanks. That's all I wanted. Thanks. And, uh, again, thank you for all the patience of all of you. And we look forward to uh, talking to you Saturday morning on 